Thank you for joining us for this episode of From All Sides, a podcast by Cube Group, where we explore the strategic, organisational and human sides of the major issues facing public value organisations. In the current COVID-19 crisis, our series focuses on the different ways this global pandemic impacts public service leaders and their organisations. And we discuss the ways we can be better prepared to lead Australia's response and recovery. More information on each episode is on our website, www.cubegroup.com.au. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Hello, I'm Tom Craven. Today is the 31st of August 2020, and it's now a little over six months since the COVID-19 pandemic hit our shores. The past month has been a particularly difficult time in Victoria. A second wave of infections has seen levels of transmission far surpassing the initial wave in April. Daily positive cases reached a new peak of 700 at the beginning of this month, and tragically now more than 500 Victorians have lost their lives. Thankfully, Victoria's swift response appears to be making significant progress. Yesterday, new cases were down to under 100 the first time this month. The economic news is also beginning to show the scale of the social and economic cost of the virus and the measures to contain it. More than 800,000 people have lost their jobs since March, and 40% of these people are young people aged 15 to 20. If the unemployment rate counted all those who have left the workforce, then one in four young people would be considered out of work. Australia's public purpose sectors recognise the enormous task before them. They face multiple waves of challenge and disruption, beginning with responding to the ongoing threat of the virus and maintaining services while under physical distancing restrictions, managing an enormous backlog of activities as those that were scaled down or delayed begin to recommence, addressing the rising complexity and complications of issues in the community and reducing and addressing the fallout of the social and economic damage that the pandemic has caused. Today we have with us Lisa Buckingham, the CEO of Working for Victoria. Working for Victoria is a $500 million initiative helping Victorian job seekers to find work and employers to find workers. This includes people who've lost their jobs and businesses who need workers due to the impacts of COVID-19. And it comes as part of a significant investment from the Victorian government to promote recovery. Lisa, thanks for being part of this conversation. Thanks for having me, Tom. To start, Lisa, can I ask where you're speaking from this afternoon? What's your remote working setup like and, and how have you found that so far? Tom, I'm beaming into you from Thornbury, just north of the city centre in Melbourne, and I am on Wurundjeri land here and I have luckily uh, have my four-year-old and two-year-old in childcare today so we shouldn't have any disruptions but I do have a couple of old dogs snoring at my feet so that that's sort of where my life is at at the moment. And I noticed from the video you've brought your office chair home with you is that part of your survival approach? It is. You've got to have old parts of comfort and new. I had to get the uh, the new IKEA desk sent through, I think, in mid-April when I realised I actually wasn't going back to work anytime soon. The, the new pieces of home office equipment. I've kept some old things like my office chair and an old mouse pad from way, way long ago and some of the creature comforts of the desk, which you can't see, but keep me, keep me happy and focused. Well, it, it's the little things, isn't it? So Lisa, working for Victoria is, I guess, at the front line of tackling the economic challenge, the economic side of the crisis. Can you tell us a bit about sort of how big that economic challenge is 
how bad is it and, and who's being most affected? Yeah, so working for Victoria, as you mentioned, Tom, was one of the, the first initiatives that the, the government came out strongly in response to the pandemic. Set up in early April, government realised that people would be impacted by this pandemic and most importantly, people's jobs would be impacted and was there a way that government could immediately support people whose work had been impacted but also people who may have had their hours reduced or were facing barriers to employment in the longer term. I think it's fair to say that COVID has had a a massive impact on, on Victoria, our economy, our way of life. And for anyone who's listening, who, who lives in Victoria, I think we've all got stories and thoughts and feelings about the last few months and, and what we've been through. But particularly from an economic perspective, the magnitude and speed of the economic downturn is unprecedented in Victoria. And we are seeing that people, industries and places are differentially impacted. And in some cases, we have new challenges, but in many instances, we're actually seeing existing vulnerabilities and existing levels of disadvantage exacerbated by COVID-19. In Victoria, we've seen the highest losses of jobs and hours across Australia, and certainly the way the government has had to respond to the second wave of outbreaks has meant that our economic situation is likely to look worse over the coming months than better. So we we are seeing a profound time. History is happening right now in Victoria, and certainly how it impacts on people's well-being, how jobs are impacted and the flow-on effects that this that we know this has in terms of, you know, people's well-being, mental health, community cohesion, presentations at emergency departments, all the things that we know are connected to having a job and having an income, we are seeing play out in real time in Victoria and at warp speed typical recession in people's mind is often, I guess, the one that impacts working class men, manufacturing or, or construction, those sorts of things. I guess they're, I guess, the historic model for a recession and often government spending is tailored that way to get us out of it. This time it's different sectors in particular, tourism, hospitality, accommodation, those sorts of sectors, many of which close their door to help stop the spread of transmission. How, how does that make this one different you know how, how, how does this one feel different to previous recessions not that we have any experience of recessions in our in our working lives really for those who weren't weren't in the workforce in the early 90s but how does this one feel different particularly thinking about those sectors that are impacted it is different and the the economists and and statisticians will tell you it's different and that's fundamentally because this economic downturn is, is caused by a pandemic. It's different to the GFC and it's different to the downturn we saw in the 90s. And that has meant that as a response to containing the virus, industries and workplaces that had higher levels of face-to-face contact, higher levels of engagement with the public have been most severely impacted and or shut down. So things like the accommodation and food sector, arts and recreation, 
surprisingly agriculture, forestry and fishing and all those types of sectors that we know and and form such a part of our our lives have been considerably impacted by by restrictions. And whilst we've seen some industries improve and increase their their share of the labour market, such as financial and insurance sectors and some utilities, for the most part, industries have been heavily hit. And those industries tend to be ones that employ women and employ young people. And those industries also tend to have more insecure working arrangements, so casual or part-time, and they also tend to be sometimes more seasonal, uh, so accommodation and tourism, definitely more seasonal. And so what we know is that because the pandemic has hit those industries, it's had a disproportionate effect on young people and a disproportionate effect on women. And then flowing from that, we're also seeing impacts on culturally and linguistically diverse cohorts of our community because they tend to work in more insecure labour and more insecure industries. Aboriginal people who also have, I would say, more vulnerable and other barriers to employment. And then we're also seeing new migrants to Australia and particularly to Victoria and, and what has been the basis of our growth for so many years now being impacted heavily by the pandemic, particularly those migrants who have moved to Australia in the last five years and maybe new entrants to the workforce who perhaps uh, their literacy skills in English aren't as strong and they don't have the connections into the labour market that perhaps more established migrants or people living in Australia since they were born have. So We've, we've absolutely seen a very differential impact to different cohorts, different industries, and certainly to different places. Existing areas in Victoria have been worst hit existing areas of disadvantage and vulnerability, but job, job losses have been widespread across Victoria and regional areas with existing disadvantage such as the central gold fields and also Latrobe remain the worst affected in terms of the overall percentage of the population facing unemployment. And we're also seeing that the numbers of people who are now on job active, so that's the welfare payment, the Commonwealth weight welfare payment has increased in some local government areas by up to 400%. Now that's just mind blowing in terms of the impact that that has downstream on the economy, but also on our communities. It's heartbreaking, isn't it? That those sort of numbers and just the, the flow on impact that creates for an entire community. I know a lot of us have been watching some of the early data was coming out that looked scary in and of itself, but also had JobKeeper, you know, cushioning the blow to a degree there. And the longer a second wave sort of went on, you could see that data getting worse and worse. Great that you raised too, though. We do come to this pandemic with a view that we're all in this together. And of course, in a way we are, we're all impacted, but it's clear from what you're saying that those pre-existing vulnerabilities that exist in for some people and for some communities are clearly clearly creating a differential impact. I think it's 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 pulled back the curtain, I think, on a lot of schisms that are that are in our society around women's place in, in the labor market, 
our caring responsibilities, vulnerability of particular populations in Victoria. I mentioned the Aboriginal community, but also new migrants. Young mothers, young single mothers are also hugely impacted by, you know, now schooling, being from home, childcare, mostly restricted except to essential workers. All of these types of policy settings and decisions, whilst there was immediate benefit through, say, JobKeeper and allowing early access to superannuation, what commentators are now saying is that the long-term impacts will even be greater for some of those groups that I've spoken about because they have accessed their super. That means at the time of retirement, their financial security and well-being will be even worse than it should be. And numbers get thrown around a lot, but if, if a young person accesses the full allocation of their super over the next two years, I think it's capped at about 20,000. Some think tanks have estimated that that will impact their superannuation payout by as much as $120,000. So they're big consequences for years to come, where we also know that younger people are suffering from the lack of jobs at the moment. Payroll numbers have decreased we know opportunities for, for young people have decreased through those impacts on the industries I've just spoken about. But when we're thinking about lifelong savings, most of our savings are done in the first 10 to 20 years of, of our, our careers. And certainly the investments that we make in assets tend to be earlier on, although that's changed because of the housing affordability crisis and other changes in our economy, certainly the thinking and commentary at the moment is that young people are, are going to be heavily impacted for decades to come from even these few rough years just by missing out on those level entry jobs, experience in the workplace and connections to employment opportunities that perhaps won't occur for another couple of years, but just push back their, their, their savings and their opportunities for financial security in the future. You mentioned women a couple of times in what you were saying, particularly being overrepresented in some of the sectors worst impacted. I wondered if there are other things you'd like to say about the experiences of women in the workplace over this period. You, oh, you also mentioned caring as well. Tell us a bit more about, I guess, the experience of women, particularly during the during this crisis and you can tell us a bit about yourself as a working mother as well and, and the conversation around being overrepresented in in most impacted sectors how else is this crisis impacting women it's a sad state but i was reading some of the outcomes of how this is impacting people more women present at emergency departments with mental health crises than men at the moment and i think the melbourne institute last week or the week before said that 47% of women are experiencing depression or anxiety in any given week during lockdown. Now, they're astounding numbers. If you think about what that means that's happening in our homes across Victoria and the impact that this is having, we know we're seeing higher rates of domestic violence. We know we're seeing not just women lose their jobs, but dropping out of the workforce entirely. 
we're seeing underutilisation rates at historic highs, never before seen on, on the ABS records. And the, the gains that women were just starting to make in terms of reducing the labour market gap between men and women, uh, we were just starting to make, you know, good, good ground on that following the GFC. That's all been wiped. That, that's all back, back to where it was. So you think about some of the other policies, settings that have been put in place. The first industry to come off JobKeeper was the childcare industry, which is 95% female. And you think about those other policies I talked about, early access to super and some of the negative impacts that schooling from home has predominantly on women and also acknowledging that most of the frontline sectors who are responsible for controlling and containing this virus and also supporting and caring for people who are affected by the virus but who are also aged are, are women. And so it's the double barrel of taking the frontline roles and, and taking on a greater burden of caring and healthcare roles and then at the same time also losing more jobs than, than men. We have the highest number of unemployed women in Victoria ever. This creates huge challenges for public policymakers in terms of, of how do we respond, how do we respond effectively and quickly, whilst bearing in mind that there are many other challenges that are going on across the state and foremost, we have to ensure that we are, you know, following the guidelines of the, the chief health officer and ensuring that we maintain social distancing and attempt to contain the virus as best as possible, whilst also noting that at the same time, it, it, it is having profound social and economic consequences. Let's turn to the response. I have been particularly heartened, I think, by well, all Australian governments, the willingness to bend and, and to commit financial and other resources towards recovery. I started the other day suggesting that the commitments by Australian governments is dwarfing that of anything we've had before, the global financial crisis response, anything like that, well in excess of that. I guess for the last, for a long period of time, the consensus sort of policy maker view around is that government is a relatively passive part of the job market. Uh, governments, you know, set markets, regulate things, but are often not seen as a direct participant, a direct job creator. Working for Victoria is much more hands-on with that. Do you want to talk to us a bit about government's response and particularly whether this is seen as a bit of a shift, a more active role for government in creating jobs? It's interesting that that's the perception because job creation is, as you pointed out, one of the tools or responses that government has to respond to unemployment. And in fact, government has various levers to stimulate and support jobs growth. I guess over time, as, as the economy and ideology has changed and, and the political economy has changed, you're right, there, there's less interventionist approaches. But I think it's interesting to point out that JobKeeper and to some extent the more than tripling of JobSeeker by the Morrison government was very interventionist. And in fact, we're seeing government intervention from conservative and, and more 
more left-wing governments around the world. And that's one of the interesting points that political economists are talking about in terms of the level of government intervention isn't falling along political or, or ideological lines at the moment. We've always in Victoria and in Australia intervened in the labour market in some way, shape or form. I guess the, the interesting aspects are about how prominent that is and how well known, but also how direct that investment is. So the big build in Victoria that we've seen with the metro tunnels and the Westgate Tunnel, massive infrastructure spending and investment that is there to, yes, leave infrastructure and leave a lasting legacy and help us get around our city faster. But it's also creating thousands of jobs in Victoria. And that, that is probably one of the primary drivers of, of our good economy over the last few years. Governments are always making changes to their tax settings and measures around the costs of doing business Governments always run attraction and facilitation investment to bring, you know, big multinational companies to their state. And Victoria has been very successful in doing that over the past couple of years alongside complementary industry development programs and investment in education and training. There's also a lot of investment in innovation programs and Victorian government over the last few years has focused on development around precincts as hubs of economic activity. I guess the reason I lay this all out is that job creation is always seen as, as such a direct and, and I guess more interventionist approach to the labour market, but really it should just be seen alongside a lot of other levers that government has to impact unemployment rates. Working for Victoria is absolutely based around job creation. We have a $500 million fund and we have created over 10,000 jobs right across Victoria that are there primarily to support unemployed people and give them work, but also to create jobs that deliver public value. We've created jobs in bushfire recovery and land management. We've got people cleaning creeks and waterways all across Melbourne and Victoria. We've got thousands of people working in community outreach, working with multicultural organisations, delivering food, visiting elderly people, checking in on people, doing family violence outreach. We've got four and a half thousand people working in local government across Victoria, delivering all types of services and supports that are in addition to the work that they currently do, but will actively support the community as we seek to recover from this pandemic. So if we think about job creation as the opportunity to give people a chance to get back into the labour market and to deliver public good, in terms of this pandemic and in terms of how we can ensure that people are connected to the labour market, we always look for jobs where there is a training or skills development aspect to it. And particularly for some of the cohorts that I've spoken about, we actively look for jobs that can target 
those more vulnerable cohorts to give them really good employment opportunities so that they can almost use it as a stepping stone into the next job. Our other focus has been on young people and we've worked very closely with several ministers who have responsibility for young people and multicultural issues and the Office for Women to establish hundreds of apprenticeships and traineeships and cadetships for young people. One of the things that experts talk about is job creation in the public sector at award rates is the best step up that you can give a young person where they are given the training and support and mentorship that they need and and that post-placement support is is critical, but that gives them the, the foot in the door to potentially think about a career in the public sector, but also gives them that basis from which they they can move ahead in their career and apply for other jobs. We know that the hardest part about getting a a stable and secure job is getting that first opportunity, getting your foot in the door, getting that experience on your resume. And if we can help young people do that with meaningful, good work and great training, then that goes a long way into ameliorating some of the the impacts that I spoke about before. I think we can all sort of personally relate to that comment, but also think about the importance of of that first job for young people and that first opportunity. And, and I suppose the other side of things is avoiding long-term unemployment, which we know can be particularly hard and damaging, loss of skills, those sorts of things. It's great to hear you talk about the extent of government involvement and things. I, I think my, my earlier introductory comment was partly a, a myth to, to dispel. I mean, government's always been an active role in each of the ways you've described. Government is also a big employer in its own right. You know, some of our most significant industries are primarily public industries as well. And government is also a big purchaser of plenty of things. I know that you're involved in social procurement and those things as well. Do you want to talk a bit about social procurement's role in helping us recover from the crisis? Well, how does that complement the things you've been describing? The social procurement framework is, I think, a ground breaking piece of policy. It is an Australian first. I can say that because I I can't claim to have any involvement in establishing it, but I'm now a, a proud flag bearer of the social procurement framework. Government has enormous purchasing power. And if you think about the dollars invested in the big build I spoke about before, but also, you know, everything that government does from purchasing the the printer cartridges right through to building a tunnel, there is the opportunity within that purchasing to encourage suppliers or to encourage buyers, I should say, to think about what are the social, economic and environmental outcomes that can be generated from that purchasing power. And so my particular interest is around the employment opportunities and the social inclusion opportunities that are possible through the social procurement framework. So government's in its early stages of implementing this framework. And I think it's fair to say, and and most people acknowledge that, that it's got a little way to run. It's got to be embedded and understood by employers better, and it's got to be part of our way of operating. But the potential there to bring people in from the margins of the the labour market to be more inclusive in our employment practices by targeting those vulnerable groups that I've mentioned, but also to think about 
how we can support broader social inclusion efforts such as social enterprises and other social benefit outfits who ultimately are employers of the people we're talking about and invest their money back into their organisations. So the impacts of the social procurement framework, I think, are yet to be felt. And I think it's the best lever that government has as a state government that doesn't have ultimate control over over tax revenue and welfare payments to influence employment in this state and, importantly, influence employment for priority cohorts who face barriers to work. And we know that there are certain people in our community who need a bit of a helping hand to get a job. And my previous role was as CEO of Jobs Bank, and that was a, an organisation, a not-for-profit, that this government set up to work with employers to help them become more inclusive in their recruitment and HR practices. We know that if if an organisation is more diverse and inclusive, they tend to be more profitable in the long run. We know that when women are on boards and uh, boards are better representative of their communities, they make better decisions And so Jobs Bank was established to, and and admittedly at a different time and a different economic situation, but really help to support employers become more inclusive because at the end of the day, it's better for business and it's better for their business and ultimately better for the, the Victorian community. So there are lots of things that the Victorian government is doing to create jobs and support employers. And really my, my view is that it's about how all of those pieces work together. You know, we've got so many employment programs, amazing community service organisations. We've got some of the best employment providers in, in Australia in this state. So we're very well positioned to come out of this on the other side well I think it's about how we are structured and all focused in the same direction that will really make the difference to those numbers that I spoke about earlier on. It feels like there's a fair bit of hope, but also it feels a little bit like we're at a crossroads in that point too, aren't we? That in some ways this crisis is stripping back some of the gains that we've been making for for years. There's a a risk or a choice, I suppose, for a lot of us as to whether we're building back better and recovering those things or, or whether we that I wonder just to, to wrap us up what are um, we've been asking this of everyone but what are some positive things you're seeing coming out of this experience that you hope that we can take forward and become part of our new normal what are some yeah what are some signs of, of hope or positive innovation that you've been seeing that that you hope that we'll take forward as we recover from Despite the doom and gloom of social media, and I think if I just, you know, I've stopped using Facebook because I can't bear it anymore, but Twitter has some funny gifts, so I stay tuned on on Twitter. But I, I think if you put that aside, there's actually been amazing gestures of goodwill and love and care right across our community. I think some of the stories that don't make it to air because, you know, they don't get the clicks are really a much richer and truer representation of our community in terms of how adaptable we are, 
um, how creative we are, some of the businesses popping up. Um, you know, I had hot pastries delivered to my door on Sunday morning. It, it was amazing. And my waistline isn't happy with all of the different cheese platters and hampers that keep getting delivered to my door. But it's such an amazing turnaround for so many businesses who've been able to adapt and think about how they can respond to this in, in really interesting and sometimes funny ways. I think, you know, if you look at some of the ways people are seeking to communicate and connect with people far more consciously than we ever have before, groups on Facebook, you know, I'm in all types of Zoom meetings, how we connect with each other at work. People are are conscious that we're all making so much more of an effort to stay connected and to talk with each other and check in and see how we're doing. I think the example of the people who rushed down to the public housing high rises when the virus was impacting on those towers and to see the community organisations and all of the people, like they had to send people away. I read an article about how in the UK, and you might be familiar with this, Tom, they set up a volunteer portal for people to see if they wanted to volunteer with the NHS. And they had 750,000 people, mostly young people, seeking to volunteer and another 250,000 within, you know, a number of number of days. It's that kind of stuff that doesn't get talked about, but I think is a truer reflection of, of the community that I live in and the people who I work with who are flogging themselves to support the community and see so much commitment from everyone to get through this and to get out the other side and I think the best thing is when you go out onto the streets and everyone is wearing a mask and that to me is just a sign that we know that we live in a community we know that we're wearing a mask not for ourselves but actually for others and that's just a sign of empathy for me and and being part of a community and there's always the exception and Luke Cornelius, uh, I think, described and characterised those people very well. You know, 99% of Victorians have taken this in their stride and I think that is a true measure of our community. My guest today has been Lisa Buckingham, CEO of Working for Victoria. Lisa, thanks so much for being a part of the conversation. Thanks, Tom. Great to be here.